everybody. Thanks for coming to this program where we have such a unique and special guest with keen insights into a very uh, important and controversial <laughs> issue of international justice. I'm so pleased to present Akwia Quinyahia, who is uh, one of our Bach visitors this year at the law school and also would like to thank the Department of Africana Studies and uh, whose chair, Barbara Savage, is here and the Center for Africana Studies for uh, co-sponsoring this. Uh, Professor Quenyahia is uh, just recently leaving her tenure as a judge uh, of the International Criminal Court. Uh, she served there from 2003 to 2015, uh, and she also was vice president of the International Criminal Court. Uh, before then, she served as dean of the Faculty of Law of the University of Ghana, and she was the first female professor of law in that country. Uh, she is uh, an esteemed expert who's taught and written extensively on gender in the law, family law, criminal law, and international human rights. Uh, she's also uh, represented Ghana on the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All <coughs> Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW. So uh, I uh, met Akwia. Uh, we were trying to remember exactly when, at least 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, when she worked with uh, Professor uh, Cynthia Bowman and I at Northwestern University. Yeah. And I had planned to go to University of Ghana and spend some time there and unexpectedly had a baby and <laughs> couldn't make it. But uh, it's really so wonderful to connect back with you again after all those years and so grateful that you are joining us here at Penn Law. I should mention that uh, she is also teaching a three-week course on the ICC from the perspective of an appellate judge. And so we're so fortunate that our students can get this inside view on the workings of the International Criminal Court and uh, that you all will be able to hear about it as well. So uh, what we'll do is Professor Quenyahia will uh, speak for uh, as long as she would like uh, about her experiences on the court. And then uh, Rangita and I will um, ask some questions. Uh, we'll have some conversation and then open it up to all of you to ask whatever questions you would like as well. So uh, welcome and I, I will turn the podium over, the chair over to you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dorothy. It's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to share a few experiences. I'm going to raise just one topic and it's very controversial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why I chose that particular topic because it will generate, I think, more discussions than we have time for. <laughs> um, there's a lot of skepticism about the International Criminal Court from some quarters. I think we're all aware of that. And the court came into being, 
the statute, the 60 ratifications were achieved on the 1st of July 2002, so technically that's when the court was born. But the first judges were elected in February 2003 and took office on the 10th of March 2003. And I was among the first 18 judges to be elected. The reason why I stayed so long is that when the first 18 judges were elected, they were put into three groups of six. The first group of six had a tenure of six years, at the end of which there was no renewal. They left. The second group of six had the full tenure of nine years. And then the third group of six were given the tenure of three years. But the statute says that if you serve a tenure of three years or less, you are eligible for re-election for the full nine years because the actual tenure is nine years, non-renewable. So six of us ended up spending uh, 12 years instead of the nine years there just because they wanted to ensure continuity. Every three years, six judges retire and six new ones are elected. Uh, currently, there are 123 uh, state parties to the statute. Of course, as you know, the court is a creature of is a treaty is, is a treaty based institution and the treaty has 123 um, ratifications as of now unless in the last month or so there has been a ratification which i'm not aware of so please don't take my word for it <laughs> everything is available on the court's website um the court really we started and I was privileged to be elected by my peers as the first vice president on the 9th of March. So we started on the 10th of March, and I was one of the, we have a president, first and second vice president. And the job of the presidency is to ensure the proper running of the court. So in addition to being judges, you also have an resp administrative responsibility. And we really went into a building that had been provided by the Dutch government, which had nothing. We had to build the court from scratch. There were 40, what they called advanced staff members who had come there. And in fact, on the first day that we went, we had to go and poach as an administrative secretary from the former Yugoslavia court because we had nobody to help us. So the actual judicial work of the court did not start immediately. It was not possible. We had to do so many things, put so many things in place. And so the actual judicial work started, I think, in 2005. And the topic I want to talk about, which is very controversial, but fine, is that there had, there's this heavy criticism of the court that it is targeting poor, helpless African countries. And um, it's a very frustrating situation if you are on the court and you're here, and especially if you're an African like me. I think when we went, there were three African women, myself from Ghana, Navi Pile from South Africa, and um, Fatima Tudembele Diara from 
money. They were the, we were the three African women on judges of the court. So if you're an African on the court, wherever you show your face, you're bombarded with questions as to why are you people targeting these poor, helpless African countries? But there is a history to what happened. There are many ways of triggering the jurisdiction of the court. And the least favorable are the negotiations for the, uh, of the Rome Statute. And please remember the statute was negotiated by the whole of the membership of the UN. It wasn't done, it was done by the whole of the UN. And the least favorable one was self-referrals. Because everybody felt that nobody was ever going to refer them, no government was going to refer themselves to the court for. And yet, what happens? The first situation we had was a referral by the government, the sovereign government of Uganda, referring the situation in northern Uganda, mm -hmm. where the Lost Resistance Army was terrorizing everybody because they wanted to take over the government of the country and rule by the Ten Commandments. The, the movement was started by a lady called Alice Makwena, but she died and then I, I, I believe that Joseph Kone is probably his, her nephew something. Anyway, the Ugandan government referred the situation of northern Uganda to the court, to the prosecutor. And the prosecutor's job was to carry out an, um, a preliminary investigation to decide whether or not the situation meets the criteria set down by the statute for the ICC to go in. Not too long after that, the Democratic Republic of Congo referred the situation, especially in the eastern part of the republic, to the prosecutor. DRC is a huge country. From one end to the other is over 3,000 miles, not even kilometers. The eastern part is where the conflict is most intense. So they, they refer the whole situation, but the eastern part was of priority to them. After DRC, then we have the Central African Republic. And then we had the Security Council referring the situation in Darfur, Sudan. Mm -hmm. Under the statute, the Security Council acting under Chapter 7 mm -hmm. of the Charter has the right to refer any situation which it feels is a threat to international peace and security to the ICC. And that state party does not have to be a party to the statute because Sudan is not a party. Mm -hmm. Libya is not a but those two situations were referred to the court by the Security Council. Uh, the only country which the court is dealing with in Africa, which was not referred, but the history of it is such that it might as well have been referred. <laughs> uh, that's the situation in Kenya after the election violence of 2008, where so much happened. If some of you may remember, maybe the professors will remember that at the end of the, uh, the there was so much violence and atrocities committed that the chairperson then of the AU, the African Union, which, who happened to be the president of Ghana, 
appointed Ufianan, Grace Marcel, and I think two others to look into why, what was happening, and to make recommendations. They produced a report which said, yes, a lot of crimes have been committed, but in order to resolve it, Kenya should set up a special court mm -hmm. to deal with the issues. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to cut everything short. Three times the Kenya parliament rejected the attempt to set up the court. So the prosecutor then, I do not know the workings of the prosecutor's office because the prosecutor, even though it's a part of the court, it's, uh, it's also an independent autonomous section of the court for the prosecutor for, so that they can be able to do their job properly. So the prosecutor then goes to the pretrial chamber for permission to investigate what happened in Kenya after the elections, that is the election violence. The pretrial chamber by a decision of three to one, two to one, authorized the prosecutor to go in and to investigate. And that's what led to the indictment of, I think, five or six people to start with, but a trial of three, one of which has been dropped, that is of the president. This is a best eye view mm -hmm. of the history behind the court being in Africa. So my answer when I am confronted with this is, the court doesn't target anybody. The fact that the court is operating in Africa is a result of a sovereign will, sovereign act by each of those governments, with the exception of the three that are top Libya, uh, Darfur, Sudan, and Kenya. And if these sovereign governments have referred the situation, and if in the opinion of the prosecutor, after doing the preliminary examination, feels that all the criteria set down by the statute are met. Then the prosecutor has a right to investigate and to prosecute in order to bring peace. And I must say that I always use this example. Northern Uganda, once the prosecutor indicted the five leaders of the lost resistance army, they moved out of and Northern Uganda now is coming back. I mean, the people are going home. They are rebuilding their lives. The Trust Fund for Victims set up as part of the uh, ICC is helping people to rebuild their lives and so on. And that was simply because they were, they were indicted. If they had not been indicted, we would still be battling all the atrocities as of now. Yes, they are hiding within the jungles of uh, Uganda, Rwanda, DRC, and so on. Um, but the ICC indictments don't expire. So to outsiders, I explain that this is it. To the African leaders, what I have said to them over and over again is that, for me, I see it as an attempt by Africa to put its house in order. If they are unable, because the government of Uganda had battled the LRA for over a period of time, and they saw the ICC as an institution that could help them 
brings the situation under control. So for me, it's a very good thing that, yes, we can't do it ourselves. There's this institution that can do it. So help us to put our house in order so that this conflict, these many, many conflicts, will stop and they, the countries can move on with development and so on. But what I suspect that the civil servants involved in all these referrals did not realize is that once you refer a situation to the prosecutor, you cannot dictate to the prosecutor who he should prosecute and who he should not. And so when the prosecutor goes into the country, he starts investigating both government and the rebels. He's not going to investigate only the rebels because the government, because both sides commit atrocities in, in times of conflict. And I think that has become a very sore point for some of the politicians involved in this. Of course, the other sore point is the fact that the ICC actually indicts, has indicted two sitting presidents and one former vice president. The sitting president being the president of Sudan and the president of Kenya. But I must say that when the indictments were issued in Kenya, the president and the vice president were not president and vice president. They became, they acceded to that position much later during the elections. So for me, the most frustrating part is that the very governments that refer these situations to the ICC do not tell their people the truth. And so you get the perception, which is fueled by a whole lot of academics and um, non-governmental organizations, that this is a, this is a neo-colonialist Western organization lording it over poor African countries. That is not the case. I think that uh, I suppose I speak as an insider, and so I'm passionate about what, <laughs> what I, I, I know. But it is frustrating if you are an African on that court when you are confronted. In fact, I was at a meeting in Abuja, Nigeria, around 2008, where I was almost lynched by the West African Economic Community members of parliament. Before they heard me, they said, ah, you people, you are harassing Africans. And they had all kinds of misconceptions. So as I entered the room, you could see the frustration on everybody's face. They thought I was a man or some big woman who can be you know, harassed. Then I entered the room and started speaking and it was like, oh, one parliamentary actually got up and said, oh, my sister, are you an ordinary woman? I said, what did you think? That I was a, I was what? I, I, I didn't know what they expected. But after about three hours of discussion, answers, what I did simply was I said, look, I'm here. Ask me any question. 
if I'm able to answer, I will answer. So that we clear a lot of the misconceptions. I had a prepared speech, but I threw it away. Mm. And we spent three hours answering questions, at the end of which the resolution was, ah, we need to take our government to tax. They have to tell us the truth. For me, I thought it was a great achievement because the court is not a neo-colonialist. Africa played a very crucial role in the establishment of this court. Mm -hmm. At one point, the majority of the people from the West wanted the court to be under the mm -hmm. United Nations. Africa stood its ground, backed by the Caribbeans and the Latin Americans, that no, we do not want the UN involved in this court. We want an independent court that can work without any pressure from anybody. And they succeeded in getting that kind of the treaty needed 60 ratifications for it to come into being. And in fact, on the 2nd of July, when they were toasting the Isha, they said, oh, now we can go to sleep. Because it had taken 50 years for the treaty to come into being. They said, oh, we can go to sleep. It will take another 20, 30 years before we get the 60 ratifications. Unfortunately, 1998 to 2002 was four years. And Senegal was the first country to ratify. And Africa had a lot of ratifications. In fact, Africa has the largest membership of the court as of now. I think 34 or 35, I don't remember. And so they had played a very crucial role in establishing this institution, in making sure that it was an independent institution. And suddenly, they had forgotten all that. So every time you need to remind them that, look, this is what you did. So this is your institution. How does it become a Western institution? And at the end of the conference, there was an invitation to all the states to host the court, because the court had to be hosted somewhere. The Dutch had done their homework. And I, I hear, I was not there, but I hear that they had their proposals already. And it was adopted by consensus that, yes, The Hague is very far away from any part of Africa. <laughs> it takes me six and a half hours to get there <laughs> from my country. And so you can imagine that the South, it takes 10 hours to get to Cape Town. No, 12 hours to get to Cape Town, 10 to get to Johannesburg and so on. So it's very far away. But to a large extent, God tries to bring home to the situation countries the work that it is doing. And so I'll rest my case here. I just wanted to raise this because it should give us enough material to discuss. I'll rest my case here and uh, hear from you. I think I'll be more interested in hearing your views. Thank you very much for that bird's eye view. <laughs> it is a really bird's eye view, of, a of quick course. scan. And I also appreciate that you immediately raised the controversial question that many people have asked about the court and being willing to address that. Uh, so let me ask you a little bit more about it. Um, I, in your explanation of why there's a disproportionate number of African countries brought before the court, um, you, you told us how uh, in each individual case, it, it, in many of them, it actually was a result of the requests of sovereign. The self-referrals, mm -hmm. self we call it. Um, and then the other cases, uh, 
where the Security Council asked for, for prosecution, investigation and prosecution. And uh, I think there's, so that explains you know, each case, but I think there's also the criticism that the very way the ICC was set up allows for the prosecution of leaders of, and others in poor, less powerful countries on the international stage and exempts powerful countries like the United States who might also be challenged for its involvement in conflicts around the world and other European countries, Israel, I mean we could go on and on about countries that are involved in conflict. Um, so how would you answer the criticism that yes there's explanations for individual cases but the very structure of the ICC permits this imbalance in power. No, unlike the ad hoc tribunals that were set up after mm -hmm. former Yugoslavia mm -hmm. and Rwanda, mm -hmm. they had primary responsibility. Those tribunals mm -hmm. had tri uh, primary responsibility to investigate and prosecute everything that went on in those single situations. Mm -hmm. The ICC was set up as a court of last resort, mm -hmm. the most, the preamble to the ICC and then Article 17 says that every state has the responsibility to investigate and prosecute crimes of serious concern to the international community. Mm -hmm. This is called the principle of complementarity. Mm -hmm. And so the ICC is supposed to operate only when a state is unable because of maybe as a result of conflict the judicial legal system has collapsed mm -hmm. or unwilling where it tries to protect the perpetrators of these heinous crimes by putting up show trials. I've just tried to simplify it mm -hmm. <laughs> to the basic that I can. Yeah. And so the, the principle of complementarity says that it is the primary responsibility of every state to investigate and prosecute crimes that fall within the jurisdiction of the court. And that the court is a court of last resort. Can only come in when a state is unwilling or unable. So if you remember at the beginning, Moreno Campo as the prosecutor kept saying that if the principle of complementarity worked, court will have no cases ever. Mm -hmm. And this means that every state that has a functioning judicial system, a legal system, police, you know, mm -hmm. all those which is functioning, doesn't need to come before the mm -hmm. ICC because that state has a primary response. Mm -hmm. So the United States doesn't have to bother itself with the ICC because it has functioning systems. And so does the United Kingdom or France or anybody. Even in Africa, my country, Ghana, doesn't have to bother itself mm -hmm. with the ICC because if something goes wrong, it should be able to investigate mm -hmm. and prosecute. Mm -hmm. So the principle of complementarity underpins the whole process. For whatever reason, the international community saw the ICC as part of the process of encouraging every state to take responsibility for the things that happened within its 
uh, territorial boundaries. And so that is my answer to mm -hmm. that. It isn't that the ICC doesn't want to go after the powerful. There is no need for the ICC to go after the so-called powerful, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. unless they demonstrate that they do not carry out their trials fairly, and so on. Thank so, you. Um, Akwa, I want to push you a little further on the principles of complementarity, Article 17, and some of the comments that you made on um, the ICC's um, role in ensuring that the principles of complementarity are met is to work itself out of a job. <laughs> and well, that's put, what Moreno Company used to say. Exactly, that's I think I believe you. <laughs> And you also mentioned earlier on that um, the idea would be to, for each of these countries, especially in the African region, to put its house in order. So, but the principle of complementarity, and you also said that countries like the US and the UK have functioning criminal justice systems. But the principle of complementarity, in my interpretation, you know, goes far beyond having a functioning criminal justice system. And that's where I want to push you further in exploring the, uh, the question of gender and gender crimes. Uh, and let me finish, because um, you know the ICC, for the first time, defined crimes against uh, sexual abuse as not just uh, war crimes, but crimes against humanity. And uh, your sister judge, Navinathan Pillay Nakayosu, had defined sexual abuse not only as uh, action but inaction and called for due diligence on the part of governments. So it really goes beyond having a functioning criminal justice system. Well, in a, I mean, I simplified it a bit. In, yeah. in addition to having a functioning criminal justice system, the statute says that every state party should endeavor to make sure all the crimes mm -hmm. under the jurisdiction of the court are also crimes within the national right. system. And you know, we operate both the common law system and the civil law system. Under civil law, once a state ratifies a treaty, the treaty automatically becomes part of its laws. And therefore, automatically, all the crimes under the act will become part. But under the common law system, Ratification does not have that effect. This country has to take the mm -hmm. further step right. of domesticating right. mm -hmm. the terms of the treaty. Yes. So there's a very strong encouragement to state parties mm -hmm. to ensure that all the crimes under the statute mm -hmm. are also crimes right. within mm -hmm. their um, criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there is help from the Assembly of State Parties for countries who are trying to enact what they call implementing legislation. Mm -hmm. The common law countries, they have to enact mm -hmm. implementing legislation. And there's a lot of help available mm -hmm. to help them to implement. Mm -hmm. And it means that once you, you pass an implementing legislation, you also have to ensure that the structures are available for you to be able to properly investigate and prosecute. So once it's done properly, it will mean that all the, of, all the crimes under the statute are also crimes. And a number of countries, have, including Kenya, including Uganda, have passed implementing legislation, ensuring that 
whatever crime is under the statute is also um, a crime at the national level. So complementarity goes much deeper than just being able to prosecute, but also having the structures to be able to prosecute, providing the training mm -hmm. for police officers. Because the statute is very big on gender. Mm -hmm. I was telling my class this morning that it is the first statute that mm -hmm. puts such emphasis on gender mm -hmm. in all its operations. On the bench, there's supposed to ensure that there is gender equality, mm -hmm. you know, fair representation of men and women. Mm -hmm. And in fact, until March 2015, there were 10 women judges and eight men, no, 11 mm -hmm. and seven. But that has slightly changed since 2015, since mine. It also requires that in the hiring of staff, mm -hmm. there should not only be geographical representation, but fair gender representation. The office of the prosecutor is expected to have on the staff a gender expert mm -hmm. to advise mm -hmm. and to help the prosecutor in investigating mm -hmm. all these gender crimes and so on. It's the first statute that really puts emphasis. And this is as a result of what was done by the ad hoc, mm -hmm. Nakayesu and so on, where they just didn't define rape as you will see defined at the national level, but said if an official watches it being done, that also is a crime and so on. So the, the ICC has a lot, owes a lot to the ad hoc tribunals. Mm -hmm and especially the gender aspects, you know. Because as we all know, in any kind of conflict, women's bodies become contested terrains. The ground where the everybody fires, you know. And therefore it is very important that there is protection or there is accountability if I may use <laughs> that expression mm -hmm. for the kinds of horrible things gender crimes that are committed in the course of all these conflicts. There isn't one conflict you can say does not have that component. All of it does. So complementarity goes much further. It's a, it's a much more complicated mm -hmm. process than, I suppose I try to simplify things too much sometimes. It goes much further than that, you know, where there is a lot that has to be done. And um, in 2012, I was at a workshop in, at the Max Planck Institute in Freiburg where we were trying to find out how best to ensure that African countries, the focus was on Africa, African countries are in a position to not only have their implementing legislation, but what else needs to be done. Mm -hmm. It's not just having the legislation. I always say that you may have the best laws on paper, but nobody will be protected mm -hmm. if they are not properly implemented or if they are not understood. And one of the many things that came up was that you, don't, you need to train judges. For example, Uganda has set up a, a, high, a division of the high court solely to deal with international crimes. And, that, and they have trained their judges. They brought them to The Hague. They've done a lot of workshops for them. So the judges who are currently sitting in that division are very well trained 
And the training is an ongoing thing. From time to time, they send them out to go and observe and so on, so that they are able, and not only are they training the judges, they are training the prosecutors, the clerks, you know, the reporters, everybody has to be trained so that they understand what the division is about. And training for me is very crucial. Apart from setting up the proper structures, you can set up the structures, but if you simply put the people there who don't know anything, nothing is going to happen. Nobody is going to benefit. So complementarity goes much, much deeper than simply having the... And I think you will agree with me that with most of the powerful countries, they do have these things. They are in a position to try most of these cases. I may be wrong, but that is my perception. <laughs> and do you find that, or did you find that the ICC was effective in addressing the gender violence that Rangita asked about, or is that, I, one thing I'm getting from your talk is that there's a certain role you see that the ICC has, and then, but it's limited, it's not, going to solve yeah, well, the, the ICC is a very exactly. young institution. Mm -hmm. That's because it's been around for a little over 10 years, sometimes people forget mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. its judicial work is very, very at the nascent stages. You know? mm -hmm. So the prosecutor has been very careful in the first case that came before the court, the Lubanga case, mm -hmm. was just the charges were of recruiting child soldiers. Mm -hmm. There were no gender mm -hmm. crimes charged. I do not know why, because I, do, I don't know how the Office of the Prosecutor operates. There were a lot of allegations of gender crimes, yeah. but maybe they were not in a position to produce the evidence, and they didn't want to go to court and lose their case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you go through the cases, you see that subsequently there have been serious gender mm -hmm. charges they have produced evidence. Of course, the first one with serial gender member has not, the decision has not come out yet, but that deals with a lot of gender crimes. And so it's been slow, and I think rightly so, because it's a very young institution. It's now trying to test the waters, if you like. Mm -hmm. And so, and it recognizes the importance of these gender crimes, because they're so prolific. They, you know, there's no conflict that you do not see horrendous amounts of gender crimes. And increasingly, we are seeing a lot more of these gender crimes being charged at the, at the court in the cases that are coming before it. Recently, uh, Zainab Bangura, the um, Undersecretary at the United Nations on sexual abuse in conflict, has said that sexual abuse is not just a tool of war, but it's a tool of terrorism. And especially in the ways in which the ICC has broadened the categories of sexual abuse to include um, enforced prostitution, forced slavery. pregnancy, slavery, I think her statement really has validity, especially what we see happening with the Yazidi women. So do you see the ICC, given the way in which, is, which it has defined these uh, crimes against uh, women and sexual abuse so broadly, uh, looking at some of these crimes 
in terms of uh, crimes as you know crimes of terror that these are not just unfortunately the def uh, there is no definition uh, there's terrorism is not included in the uh, defined crimes that the court has jurisdiction over but the crimes against humanity and war crimes are defined in such a way that they cover all these activities. So I don't think there's a limitation in terms of charging any of these uh, sexual crimes. Because these things are committed, these offenses are committed en masse. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not, and it's all, not only against women, sometimes against yes. men. In the former Yugoslavia, we were all witness to the horrendous pictures that were shown on television around the world and so on. And so the definitions are such that I would find it difficult to define a situation that will not fall within um, the way the crimes have been defined, both as war crimes or crimes against humanity. I think we should, yes. Open yeah. up to the, so, uh, oh yes, okay, so there are mics uh, in front of you, the little black boxes, and uh, there's a button to push, is that the idea? Okay, so uh, if you'd like to ask a question, please push the button. Yes, go ahead. <coughs> I think it's the green oh, mic okay. is on, right? You have to hold it down. Oh, you have to hold it, you must hold it down. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I mean, Keep the light has come on. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you very much. My name is Ali Din Ark. I'm with the Department of Africana, and I am um, pro-ICC. Um, I'm just glad to, to, to hear your, your remarks, and I, I really uh, sympathize with the position of the ICC judges uh, regarding the, the, the African position and um, with regard to, to your work. And that uh, leads me to raise uh, several points with regard to the uh, impact of indictment itself. Um, you, you cited the case, for example, of the LRA, mm -hmm. that they just, after the indictment, they left from, from, yeah. from Uganda. But they run havoc in other places in DRC and now in Central Africa. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Sudan, with the, with the indictment, is still that gives the government like maybe more time and more leg to stay in power, regardless. So that we just, although it is good, like in places like um, in um, uh, in West Africa, Carlos Taylor and the and 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 Bagbo now in ISIS. I mean that is that is good. So I just need your uh, your comment. Um, uh, on this issue, uh, and also uh, to the issue of genocide mm -hmm. um, in the case, because it became like a, a very frightening uh, position. Today I just read the, uh, the African Union report about the violence in South Sudan, where rape and cannibalism and all these atrocities like being committed. But when you read the report of 26 pages, uh, they said, specifically they said like, but there is no evidence of genocide. Mm -hmm. so, so that's like, um, uh, raised also a question. And especially also with a country like South Africa, which is just now trying to 
uh, leave the, the ICC. Mm -hmm. So my question is, like, what do you think um, from your position as a judge? What could be former then? Judge. Yeah, <laughs> former judge. Like, what could be done to embolden the ICC or to make it more palatable uh, to African countries? And at the same time, also, what is it there um, in the court? Is there any difference in the cases which being um, being uh, presented to you by the government itself versus those which being referred to you by the United Nations Security Council? Thank you. Um, genocide itself, if you do criminal law, is very difficult to define. I mean, it's a very difficult offense because it has to have certain elements mm -hmm. that are sometimes difficult to find in practice. So if you notice, the first indictment against Bashir, genocide was not charged because it wasn't, the chamber was not, at least the evidence put before the chamber, was not such as to show that the intention was to wipe out completely these individuals under attack. Later on, the prosecutor probably brought a lot more evidence, and genocide was added to the charges. I just started reading the AU report on, is this South Sudan? Yes. So I haven't even finished reading. In fact, I was so disgusted when I started reading it, that I stopped because I didn't want to go on reading. It's very upsetting, the kinds of things that they're saying. But again, you need to be sure that what is being done is directed at completely eliminating either the newest or what's the other tribe? The Dinkas. Because the accusation is that the Dinkas are trying to eliminate the US and so on. But these offenses are being committed by both sides. So who is trying to, who is committing genocide and who is not? Of course, I don't have the evidence. I haven't seen the evidence. So in dealing with genocide, there is a lot of, it's very problematic. And you have to have enough evidence to convince you that the purpose is. For example, in Sudan, when I sat on it, Yes, they will raid the village. They will raise part of it down. But they will leave part of it so that the people could come back to it. It's very difficult to say that, therefore, they want to get rid of all of them. Maybe I didn't have enough. You know, the evidence didn't convince me that at the time. But then I didn't sit on it a second time, so I don't know what happened. The problem with Africa. There are two problems with the AU, with the ICC. One is the indictment of certain heads of states. It's a club. You know, the, the, the organization, the heads of state, is a club. And if you are indicting somebody today, tomorrow you will be on my case. So we need to protect ourselves. You know, that's how I see it. Because they are outraged that uh, <coughs> you can actually charge a sitting president and bring the sitting president to court. And that, that outrage occurred the minute Bashir was indicted. 
And the problem is the ICC indictments have no expiry dates. They go on and on. And I believe, but this is just my thought, that with time, there will come a time when Bashir will not be so eager to travel outside of the Sudan as he was to begin with. Because in the beginning he was going to charge, he was going there. It's changed a little. He was in Nigeria and he had to leave in the middle of the night. And he was in South Africa. And the same happened. South Africa went even further where the Supreme Court issued an injunction that he should not leave the country. And that's very embarrassing in terms of politics. As a judge, it's not my job to comment on politics, but I feel that that's a very embarrassing situation. And South Africa is not the first country which tried to get out of um, the ICC. When Kenya, after cooperating, when the head of state, the, the indictee became the head of state and the deputy head of state, they threatened to leave, but it didn't work out. And so they still cooperate. There are pros and cons to charging sitting presidents. And each side sounds very good when you listen to it. But my question is, should you let the heads of states go scot-free so that these offenses can be repeated? And that's for us to judge by ourselves, you know. It's not for me to decide that. Yes, Kenyatta was brought before the court, even as president. He came. At first, he said he wasn't coming. But he came, because Kenya still cooperates with the court. He came, did what his, he didn't speak, his lawyers spoke. At the end of the day, the prosecutor decided to withdraw the charges. He has not been found not guilty. The prosecutor simply said, I am not getting cooperation to get the evidence. I know where the evidence is, but I'm not getting cooperation to have the evidence. So I don't want to go to court and lose my case. So I'm withdrawing for the time being. At some point in the future, who knows? She may be able to get the evidence that she needs, and then she will go. I think that there's a need. And the ICC and AU, they talk. It's not that we are not on speaking terms. <laughs> we are very good speaking terms. But I think there's a need for more dialogue between the EU. There's so much antagonism that in recent times they won't even invite us <laughs> to add this, you know. Whereas in the past they used to invite us, you know. So sometimes we do very naughty things to get into the, <coughs> into the assembly. But there's a need for more dialogue. There's a need for the heads of states to understand that when the right thing is done, nobody's going to go after anybody. But if we, the important, the powerful people, will sit and watch our people being slaughtered, or participate, direct that slaughter, then of course they have to be brought to book. The problem is that the court again sits on two legs. One leg is a judicial, the court is a judicial body, the judiciary and so on. And then the political leg is the Assembly of State Parties, mm -hmm. which deals with all these issues of politics and so on. 
the judges cannot get involved in these issues. Yes, we, we will get involved in the definition of genocide because that's our job. But all these things about immunity to heads of states and so on, that's not that. The law says, as far as the ICC is concerned, there's no immunity for your position. The politics of it is for the ASP, the Assembly of State Parties, to deal with. And in terms of emboldening the court, I don't see what else can be done seriously. Because it's a purely judicial body dealing with the statute as its uh, source of, of law. It's for the AU heads of state to really examine themselves. Why are they so outraged? Is it because they know that some of them do wrong? But they do. What is the point of the fighting in South Sudan? Tell me. There's no point to it. Why so many people are being killed? In fact, one of the things, first things I read was that there was actually no attempted coup you know, in the report that we are talking about and so on. So what is the point of that fight? And who is suffering in that situation? It's the ordinary poor people who have no power. So should, of course, South Sudan is not the party to the statute. So what can we, what can be done to stop the fighting so that people will have their peace of mind? They are not running in the night carrying their bundles of possessions and so on. It's a very frustrating situation, especially for me as an African. I wish I had a solution to it, but I don't. And the same thing is happening there for over and over again. Oh. <laughs> um, do you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer from North Africa, Algeria, and I, to what my brother Ali said, I support the ICC, not because I believe it's a perfect institution, oh, no. or it's an institution that was created based on laws that the African countries have participated in, after all, international is a Western law. But on the other hand, my perspective is this. If the African leaders complain about the ICC, then there is a way of stopping and complaining about the ICC by implementing mm -hmm. their own laws. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at any constitution in Africa, if you just hide the name and you read the constitution, you say, I really want to live in this country. Exactly. What a wonderful country. Exactly. In terms of civil rights, in terms of civil liberties, in terms see this is really the problem that we have. For me, the worst thing that you can do to an African leader to really get them, to get them to think is you deprive them from not being able to go to Paris, not being able to go to London, not being able to, to come to, to the US. <laughs> come to the US or Geneva. Yeah, they can go to Algiers, they can go to Chad, they can, but that's not really what they, they really want. So therefore, in that context, I really believe that the ICC, to a certain extent, has in a way promoted probably directly or indirectly good governance because it's all about the rule of law. If domestic law is implemented, then 
why do we really have to care about this international human rights? Exactly. When you look for us the African system of human rights, where is it? We have the African Charter of Human Rights. With the global clauses, they can they basically they can decide anything against national interests. And, and then you mentioned the leaders of the African. They have to decide whether there is a violation or not. So I really frankly we should really stop complaining about the ICC because I don't think the complaint is coming from the average person. The complaint is coming from the leadership. And that's really my perspective. I mean, no country is perfect, but when you really reflect on the United States, there are also problems and all that. So, but in that context, I support the ICC. I really hope that it would work as a deterrent. This is really where I'm a little bit, you know, if you want to sh shed some light, in your opinion, do you think that to that extent is working as a deterrent in light of your experience? Well, um, thank you very much for that insight, you know. Um, you know that the African Union has been talking for years now about setting up their own system to try their own people. But what happens when they want to set up the African Court, African Criminal Court, as part of the African Court of Human Rights? The first thing they do is grant immunity to heads of states. <laughs> what kind of court is that? What, what is the court able to do if you grant immunity to the heads of this, the very people who would probably engineer whatever is going on. And then that is why sometimes I speak very harshly about the African heads of state and so on. Who would like to sit on that kind of court? I wouldn't. Because if I'm sitting on the court and I'm supposed to grant immunity, not only to heads of states, but to those in power, then what kind of, are we going to try the ordinary man on the street who is ordered to kill? No, it's not be, it will not be fair. And I think that it's time that we call them to order that. And the reason why they are making a lot of noise is because now everybody is on notice that if they continue to do these things, there is an institution that could go in, investigate, and prosecute. And that's the ICC. It is not a perfect institution. It has a lot of flaws. I was telling my students that the statute was negotiated by politicians, not by lawyers. So it's full of <laughs> compromises. The idea was that at the end of the day, it will be cleaned up by the lawyers. But there was no time for the lawyers to sit and clean. So now, the judges have to up work with it. And as we go along, as we find the flaws and so on, we begin to document them and to find ways of The court has a committee on legal text, so it meets three, four times a year to look at some of these bottlenecks and to suggest ways of dealing with them. Then it goes to the Assembly of State Parties and so on. In terms of deterrent, as I say, I think it's a, it's a bit early to say, but the fact of the noises convinces me that they are on notice and they cannot get away with some of the things that they used to do in the past. And hence the outrage and the fact that somebody is a sitting president and then you drag the person to court. When Kenyatta was asked to come to the court last year, the number of African states that advised them not to. But in the end, they advised themselves and he came. 
And he, the court was very careful. The chamber was very careful. He spent only one day. Because they recognized one of the things, especially that case, the, the Kenya case has shown is that because of their responsible positions, they are not supposed to be sitting in court every day. There are times when the vice president doesn't come to the court because the court says, okay, at this stage, we really don't need you. When we need you, you will come. And they recognized that Kenyatta was a president and gave him all the... Of course, he was not indicted as a president. And I remember the controversy that when he came into the court, some academics and Kenyans were saying, he should be addressed as your excellency. And the chamber said, no, yeah. he's indicted in his personal capacity. So he's Mr. Kenyatta. And that is the end of the story. Now that has died down, you know, because everybody understands that. He's not indicted as a president of Kenya. He's indicted as a person. So in terms of deterrent, well, I think the jury is out still. But the fact of all the noises, I've, I've always said that if the ICC were not there, they would have no reason to be complaining. But they know that they could be indicted themselves. The former vice president of the DRC, Bemba, is indicted in relation to the Central African Republic because he sent his troops to Central African Republic to help Uzizi. And in the course, they committed a lot of atrocities. And he's been tried. And all this they find really annoying. Because they are very important people. I'm sorry. Yeah, so thank you for your insights and, and for your work in international criminal justice. You've said several times that it's early to tell. So I want to fast forward you another 12 years and ask you what will define success at that point? I think the challenge, one of the biggest challenges facing the court, and the court has, the judiciary, has always been aware of it, is to establish its credibility in terms of its trials. That the trials are transparent, they are fair, and they move expeditiously. Respecting the rights of the accused and everybody. I know it's easier said than done, but so far, I think they've tried very hard. The first trials took much longer, but what happens at the end of every stage, when we started pre-trial, I was telling my students that the pre-trial hearings, which is supposed to really confirm or not confirm the charges, it took about two weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, they take three days, because at every point, we go back and we see, how did we do it? How can we do it better? How can we improve? You know, so there's a lot of introspection as time moves on. And in spite of the fact that these international trials take long because of the investigation going up and down and so on, and the need to be scrupulously fair in respecting the rights of the accused and so on. Court, fast forward 10 years, they would have had a number of trials and they would, that would make or break the court in terms of, because once the court is able to establish its credibility in terms of its trial, because it's a judicial institution, what happens politically, I'm not concerned about too much, because that's not my job. 
if he's able to establish his credibility. We have three finished cases, two convictions, one acquittal. Not bad to start with. Uh, thank you so much for coming here. Um, I just have uh, two comments to make. I uh, unfortunately do not, I'm against ICC, and I sympathize with African leaders. Um, on the grounds that I uh, agree with the South African parliament that say that ICC looks to have lost its direction, and unfortunately it's not fair anymore. Um, I want to know how you think about the South Africa's decision to leave ICC. And uh, also my second question is uh, the immunity that is granted to African leaders. ICC tends to be biased against that as regards to the, to the other P5 countries that make these great big decisions. So comment on the immunity or leader, global leaders and then the decision for South Africa to leave ICC. Seriously, I have no comments on the decision. South Africa is a sovereign state. Joined the ICC as a sovereign state. It has cooperated with the ICC, at least during my tenure, all the time that I was there. I know the number of times that I had to go to Jubeg or to Cape Town to have discussions on various issues and so on. We had been very helpful to the ICC at the EU and so on. If for whatever reason, they decide that they don't want to be part of the ICC. It's for them to decide, and it's for their parliament. It's only, the process has only just begun. It's for their parliament to decide one way or the other. And the immunity, the, the statute is very clear about immunity. It doesn't specify that uh, heads of states from this region don't have immunity, but this, every, everybody in authority, does not have immunity if it comes to the court. The lack of immunity for heads of states and people of um, authority applies globally to everybody. There are no distinctions. If you look at the, I think it's Article 27. I, I don't remember the, <laughs> the actual articles, but it's there. It applies to everybody. Are you going to follow up on? Oh, well, you know, he said Habri is not cooperating with the court. That is my understanding. The first time he went there, I think they carried him on a, a stretcher or something. He doesn't want to have a judge. He doesn't want to be represented by lawyers. He doesn't recognize the court, so he doesn't want to have any interaction. So I don't know how the trial is going to go ahead. But I must confess that I haven't followed it up in the last month. So I haven't looked at Maybe you have more recent information on him than I do. Hi there. Thank you very much for uh, your insights. Um, I want to ask you about a case that actually uh, the pretrial proceedings just began a few weeks ago, so it's after your tenure. But um, it is, to my knowledge, at least in my understanding from the press coverage, the first time 
that uh, the court is treating cultural destruction as a war crime, and it involves uh, someone who's oh, accused the, of... Oh, the, the gentleman from Mali. Yes, who's accused of uh, overseeing the destruction of uh, saints' tombs and mosques. And I was wondering what kind of um, challenges or complications that you see uh, could you anticipate seeing in that kind of case, since it's, to my knowledge, the first case of its kind that the ICC is uh, addressing. I wonder, actually, I haven't, my, I haven't really gone to the website to see what, I've been speaking to my legal officers, but I was preparing for this, for my <laughs> teaching, so I didn't concentrate. But you, seriously, the offense occurred on the territory of a state party, Mali. Mali is a state party. So that triggers the jurisdiction of the court. But the I don't know where they are going to fit it, honestly. I'm sorry I can't be more articulate than that because it's only just started. I don't think the pre-trial uh, hearing has even started. It's just been surrendered to the court and they probably fixed the dates and so on. But a whole lot of is going to go into it before the hearing starts. So thank you for reminding me. I'm going to update myself on the facts. I have one question. Oh, sorry. What is this? Sorry. Okay. I don't, is there, are there any other questions from the audience? I just want to comment about South Africa. I mean, I'm, as an African, I'm so proud of South Africa because when you read the South African Constitution, you talk about civil rights and civil liberties. They have the best. It's, it's the leader in Africa. And then when yet, when they decided how to deal with Omar al-Bashir, I felt very disappointed this is an African. Because we need somehow to start reading about good governance and forcing the rule of law and hold our leaders for the violation of civil rights and civil liberties. And forget about, yeah, there is colonialism, there is globalization, there is the West, there is America. But this is about the average person, African, who's been abused by his own leaders. This is really how I look at it. I don't look at it as really being pro-West against West. I'm really thinking about it about as an African. And therefore, if a country like South Africa does not stand for human rights, for civil liberties, for what is really right, who else? So that's really my, my perspective about the South African position. Thank you. As a judge, sometimes I'm constrained to keep my thoughts to myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to hear them being expressed by others. <laughs> you learn you that. I didn't know that. I was, a, I was a professor, so I had freedom of yeah. expression. Yeah. I could say whatever I, I wanted. Yeah. And I found myself in a court where I had to think every time I opened my mouth. Uh, to some extent, <laughs> there are oaths that you take that bind you for the rest of your life. Oaths? Oh. Yeah. Mm. The oath of office and so on. Yeah, but what, that, what does that restrict you from talking about that? Oh, well, you know. I'm just wondering. <laughs> you cannot disclose the, anything oh, that you did. You cannot yeah. disclose anything that you did in terms of deliberations. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Of, and that binds you for life. Yes, yes. I can't even write about them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I would love to. 
Yeah. yeah. If I had the chance, but I can't do that. Yeah. And you know, habits die hard. Okay. After 12 years of keeping my thoughts to myself, mm -hmm. I'm always very careful mm -hmm. what I say. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to comment very briefly, just building on his question, on South Africa's tradition of restorative justice mm -hmm. flowing from the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, and therefore the, uh, the complementarities, the contrast, the co um, um, and the differences with the ICC? Well, South Africa is one of those countries that have very good implementing legislation. And they chose deliberately to go the way of truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as far as the ICC is concerned, the ICC only deals with the judicial aspects of these things and doesn't interfere in any way. If you remember, Sierra Leone chose to go truth and reconciliation and a hybrid, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a hybrid court. The idea of the hybrid court was to help rebuild the judicial system that had completely collapsed. Mm -hmm. you know, so it was more or less like training ground for mm -hmm. the judges that survived, those who were not killed or those who didn't run away and so on. And so whichever, and the, Liberia, for example, decided to go the way of truth and reconciliation because they think that will best serve their interests for peace and reconciliation. That is a choice left completely to the state part, states, mm -hmm. and the ICC doesn't interfere in it at all. But do you have an opinion on which is better? I think which you need work, how they work together. There has been a lot of, uh, especially at the beginning, at the inception of the ICC, there was a lot, especially coming from Africa, that there's need for peace before justice, you know, and there should be people should concentrate on peace and restoration. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But I'm a firm believer that there can be no lasting right. peace without, without justice. justice. Mm -hmm. And they can't You will have a semblance, a semblance of peace, mm -hmm. but the conflict will result. Mm -hmm. It is when you operate the two that you are likely to get lasting mm -hmm. peace and justice. You know, peace and economic development. Because why do you want peace? You want peace so that people can progress. Like he says, we all, all African countries have beautiful constitutions. When you read the constitution, you would want to live in them. But what happens to the constitution? It is thrown somewhere and something else goes on. And you need somebody to speak up. And so you cannot say, a country that has been devastated by conflict, the atrocities that have happened just have to be swept aside in the interest of peace. Mm -hmm. That peace will not last. Mm -hmm. You need to operate both. And that's why I admire Sierra Leone for doing what they did. They did um, both the court and uh, truth and reconciliation. And when it came to the trial of Charles Taylor, the country was very firm. He said, we do not want him tried in the... He was being tried by the Sierra Leone court. But they said, we can't try him in this country. He will disrupt everything. And so they came to The Hague. We rented them a courtroom and offices, and they tried Charles Taylor. But we didn't try them. We didn't try him. The, ju the, the, ju the judges came and tried him. 
and heard the, and the appeals, came to hear the appeal and everything. That was a very bold decision because mm -hmm. there was a lot of pressure on them to let the quarter. And they said, no, we are a very fragile country. We are just emerging from this horrendous conflict that had engulfed the country. We are not going to try him here, even if it's a question of money. So there we are. Truth and reconciliation have their role. In my country, they did it. In Liberia, they've done it. Sierra Leone and South Africa has done it. It works if you're going to look at the justice side as well. If you simply leave it, from time to time you will see the conflict rearing its head. We call them the ad hoc tribunals. Arusha tried the Arusha was set up as a result of the the genocide in Rwanda, and Yugoslavia was set up in the Hague as a result of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. But they are winding down. What they were set up by the United Nations to deal with a specific. I think the international community was so outraged by what happened in both countries. And it was decided that those responsible have to be held accountable. So they set up these tribunals, and they were fully funded by the UN. And I'm sure you've read about the high cost of it. So once the ICC was set up, they had an exit program where a lot of the minor cases had been transferred to countries in the former Yugoslavia. And in the same Rwanda, you know, Rwanda, they set up all kinds of things, the Gachachas program and so on. So really, they are on the last stages of winding up and closing down, both Arusha and the Yugoslavia court in The Hague. In fact, all they are hearing are appeals that had been outstanding. Once they finish those appeals, no new cases have been started. They went through a process of training judges from the various countries to be able to handle those cases, the rest of them. Because remember, they can only try those with the highest responsibility. There are hundreds of criminals. They can't, the ICC can't try any of those people. It's too expensive. Thank you so much for all of your insights and interesting discussion. And thank all of you for coming and participating. And uh, have a good evening and enjoy the rest of your time here.